Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chastley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Stimulus showdown, two plans, $2 trillion apart, no time to lose in D.C. Tech takedown, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube removing a fake COVID cure video seen by millions. And an unsavory slowdown, sales plummeting at McDonald's. It's Tuesday, let's make a move. A warm welcome to all our first movers across the globe. It is great to be back with you. But once again, the numbers tell the story in the fight against COVID-19. And that's where I want to begin. Almost 16 and a half million people. The number of confirmed cases to date globally. More than 650,000 people have lost their lives. However, there are 25 potential vaccines in human trials now around the world. There are also 230 active trials going on for potential treatments. Moderna, Pfizer beginning late-stage trials of their vaccines. The U.S. says Moderna's shot could be ready for rollout by the end of the year. So it's a tale of two halves here. It's the positives that investors continue to focus on, the positive medical news helping support global stocks. Wall Street, though, softer, as you can see in front of you after strong gains yesterday, where tech once again outperformed. Similar story in Asia as well, where the session was mostly higher. The Hang Seng's new tech index soaring on day two of trade after a lackluster debut on Monday. The Chinese tech giant, two Tencent, popping higher. That's now overtaken Facebook as the world's most valuable social media firm by market cap, too. So we've got the tech sectors around the world gaining. The science seems to be getting there. The stimulus, meanwhile, or further stimulus, has a fair way to go. Mind the gap. That's the message from D.C. after the Republicans revealed a $1 trillion aid package. Remember, the Democrats want something three times the size of that. It may take weeks for Congress to agree on this and key parts of the present support package run out this month. Manu Raju joins us live with the latest from Capitol Hill. Manu, I'll hone in on what happens with the bump up in unemployment benefits because the Republicans here are saying you've been getting too much for too long and they want to reduce them. Yeah, they do. From $600 a week, which is what was approved in the March stimulus law, to the Republican proposal as calling for $200 a week. And then that would transition into a program that would allow for a 70 percent wage replacement placement over a two month time period. Now, the Democrats have already rejected that as out of hand. They have called for an additional $600 a week to be extended. But that's not the only difference. There are significant differences. You mentioned it. One is just simply on the price tag, roughly 
$2 trillion difference between what the Democrats propose and what the Republicans propose. And there are a whole range of issues in between, whether it's the amount of money for state and local governments here in the United States. Uh, the Democrats want a trillion dollars for that. The Republicans don't ask for nearly as much. The Republicans uh, only uh, ask for $105 billion to help with the insistence of opening up schools. Uh, the, the Senate Democrats instead have asked for $430 billion to deal with just that. So you have to deal with the money, but you also deal with some of the specific policy issues, too. One of the red line issues for the Senate Republicans is to ensure that businesses that reopen will not get sued, as well as healthcare workers will not get sued, schools will not get sued. They want those liability protections. That's a, that's a red line for the Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. The Democrats don't are not in favor of that. They've pushed their own protections for workers. So those are the things that they have to sort out. But on top of all that, that unemployment benefit program expires at the end of this week. People are going to start to lose that paycheck. So there's real pressure on Congress to get something. But what they will ultimately get and when they will get it remain the big questions here on Capitol Hill, Julia. Yeah, it's fascinating. The University of Chicago estimated that 68% of those receiving benefits were getting paid more than they were before pre-COVID. But at the same time, we're a spending-driven economy. Somehow you have to try and support growth. Manu, I want to move on, though, because there was something at the bottom of that little screen that we were showing, which was a minor sum in the grand scheme of things. But it was $1.75 billion for a redevelopment of the FBI HQ, a specific request from the U.S. administration. A few eyebrows raising over this one. What do we know? Yeah, no question about it. This has been a controversy for some time because the president has called for the rebuilding of the FBI building in downtown D.C. to occur on the same plot of land in which it currently exists. And why that's significant is because the Trump Hotel is right across the street from the FBI building. So the concerns are that the president is trying to keep that property on federal land and and uh, controlled by the federal government to prevent another hotel from coming in there potentially and taking away business from the Trump Hotel. Now, this issue has essentially been stalled for some time, but the administration demanded money in this COVID relief package of $1.75 billion for a new FBI building in downtown Washington, D.C. Now, the Senate Republicans are not in favor of that. Mitch McConnell, the majority leader of the U.S. Senate, wasn't even aware that was in there when he was asked last night. And he said that you have to ask the administration why they wanted that. Administration officials were on Capitol Hill. We tried to ask them multiple times why that uh, that money is in the in the package. They would not respond to questions about that. But clearly, the Democrats believe this is an effort to help the president's business. And they're going to push back on this. The question is, ultimately, how much does the president dig in? Does he demand this money in there? or does it it fall by the wayside, Julia? Yeah, give you one guess, quite frankly, and uh, perhaps you'd be forgiven for missing it, given it's on, what, page 177 of the appropriations section of the package. Hmm, is all I can say. Manu Raju, thank you so much for that. Thanks. Now, a video making false claims about a coronavirus cure has been scrubbed from social media, but not before it was seen some 14 million times on Facebook alone. This video, published by the right-wing outlet Breitbart, was also taken down from Twitter and from YouTube. Haddis Gold joins us now. Aha, Haddis, we found the bar here for seeing dramatic action within the space of a few, few short hours from the social media giants. But this one was pretty bad, and it was shared by President Trump in numerous ways. 
Now, Julia was shared by President Trump. It was shared by his son as well. And this video featured a group of people calling themselves America's frontline doctors. They did a press event in front of the Supreme Court. And this video showed these people saying that you don't need masks, claiming that there is a cure out there, that hydrochloroquine is effective, and that recent studies showing otherwise are fake science. They claim that the virus has a cure. Now, this video went viral on social media, partly because of outlets like uh, like Breitbart, and also, of course, because of President Trump and his son, who obviously have huge followings. And although the platforms did ultimately take the video down, they, as you said, uh, these, this video got more than 14 million views on Facebook alone. And there's, of course, more views on YouTube, more views on Twitter. And it's still, I have to say, it's pretty easy to find this video online if you want to, just because these social media platforms took action to scrub them. Just goes to show you how quickly things like this misinformation can spread. Now, these social media platforms have really ramped up their misinformation policies in the past few months to respond to situations like these and, and to deal with coronavirus misinformation. It is a very rapidly evolving situation, but just goes to show you how quickly viral videos like this, especially when you have a president and his family who tend to like to share or retweet things like this, uh, that it's really hard to manage. Now, when you go to President Trump's Twitter feed, you actually see quite a few tweets that say this tweet, this, this tweet has been removed because it doesn't comply with our policies. Of course, this does not prevent people from seeing this video. This does not prevent people from listening to what this video has to say, but it's something that social media companies have to deal with, and they, they are for sure actually going to hear questions uh, questions about this tomorrow because all the CEOs of some of the biggest internet platforms, we're talking uh, Facebook, Google, uh, Amazon, and Apple are all going to be facing a questioning tomorrow in Congress for that big antitrust hearing. Now, this hearing is ostensibly about antitrust, but without question, Julia, there will be questions about misinformation and about this video tomorrow, I can guarantee. Yeah. They cannot control content that is fake that is out of control in this manner when it's being uh, spread and goes viral. But the other thing had us here, I think, which is key, and you've pointed to it, they can react really quickly, at least to try. Haddis Gold, thank you so much for that. All right, now, from the dramatic rise in coronavirus cases here in the United States and the discussion about it to Asia, where even a small number of new infections trigger strict action across the region. Chrissy Lustout has the details. Takeaway in Hong Kong, it's not just about grabbing a quick meal to go anymore. As of Wednesday, it's a city mandate. The new order is part of a government plan to try to stamp out a third wave of coronavirus in the city. Indoor dining will no longer be allowed. The restaurants can stay open for carryout. Some workers worry that they won't make enough money to get through this latest round of restrictions. It has affected us quite a bit, one woman says, because our takeaway sales are not that great. And now, by banning all dining, it's very hard for us to survive. Authorities also issued tougher requirements for masks, which will now be mandatory even when outdoors, with a fine of $645 for anyone who doesn't comply. But the coronavirus isn't just surging in Hong Kong. In mainland China, local transmissions are the highest they've been in almost five months. Singapore surpassed 50,000 cases. Vietnam, which has reported only a handful of cases since April, is evacuating 80,000 people from Da Nang. After an outbreak in the popular resort town, the prime minister is urging citizens to social distance again. We need to remain calm, he says, and take the matter seriously to find an effective way to stop the virus from spreading. 
But many countries are struggling to do just that, especially in densely populated areas like India, where in just one day, nearly 50,000 new infections were reported. Record numbers in Australia, too, which recently had its deadliest day of the pandemic. The premier, the state of Victoria, which is under a second lockdown, says people are simply not following the rules. It's just a matter of fact. We have too many people who have symptoms and they are going to work. And what that means, even with mask wearing, even with hand hygiene, even with distancing, uh, that is an unacceptable risk in terms of transmitting this virus. A virus that is still thriving across Asia and is especially tenacious when people let their guard down. Christy Lu Stout, CNN, Hong Kong. Even with all the measures put in place. Now, officials in mainland China reporting 68 new cases today. This COVID-19 infection spiked in the western region of Xinjiang, the capital Beijing, also reporting two new cases. David Culver joins us now with more. David, we keep talking about this when we compare in terms of notional amount what's going on in places like China with the United States. It's you just can't compare because they're so small. But the reaction that they get dramatically outweighs and outsizes what you're seeing elsewhere. Julia, you're so right about that. I mean, when you mention single digits or even double digits in new daily reported cases, it's laughable to some folks who are looking at hundreds, if not thousands of new cases reported each day. Nonetheless, the response here is very different and it happens in compartmentalized fashion. So we saw it in Beijing, for example, just last month where there was a cluster outbreak that stemmed from a market. Immediately what we saw within Beijing were parts of the city, a city of 20 plus million people coming to Wuhan style lockdowns, people sealed inside their homes in certain communities, basic needs having to come to them. It had just returned to a sense of normalcy for a lot of those folks. Most of us were able to get around and do things as we were pre-COVID-19. However, immediately you're jolted back into this pandemic reality. The same is true for what's playing out right now in Xinjiang, the far western region of China. They right now have the highest number. This cluster outbreak is centered there. They're not given a timeline as to how long the lockdowns are gonna be in place because quite frankly, they just don't know. It's as long as it takes to suppress this. What we do see though is even if it happens, for example, in a city like Beijing, like we saw last month, what happens is life continues outside of those compartmentalized lockdowns. Business is resuming in those parts that kind of uh, border those areas. And the reason is it, it allows the economy to keep going. I mean, you and I have talked about just how devastating the 76-day lockdown was for Wuhan. A lot of those businesses never reopened. And those that have are still struggling to come back online. They're trying to avoid that here at a wider level, but at the same time, trying to stem the spread of this virus. Yeah, and in order to do that, you need comprehensive testing and you need to be able to trace if you want to tackle it at a localized level. David, thank you so much for that. David, come over there. All right, let me bring you up to speed as well with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. In the next hour, the U.S. Attorney General will face tough questioning from Democrats on Capitol Hill. They're accusing William Barr of abusing his office to protect the interests of President Trump. In testimony before a House committee, Barr is expected to defend his actions, including the deployment of federal agents to Portland. Guilty on all charges, Malaysia's former Prime Minister Najib Razak was sentenced to 12 years in prison in the first trial over the multi-billion dollar scandal at state fund 1MDB. He was also fined nearly $50 million. 
The court found Najib guilty of looting money for his personal benefit from Malaysia's government investment fund. He's vowed to appeal. Police on Tuesday searched a garden in Germany as part of the Madeleine McCann investigation. The three-year-old girl disappeared in 2007 during a family holiday in Portugal. Prosecutors in Germany say evidence suggests a man jailed for a different crime killed Madeleine, but no trace of her has yet been found. All right, we're going to take a break here on First Move. But coming up, is capitalism at risk from an over-reliance on governments in times of crisis? We'll discuss and some startling numbers about the number of businesses going under due to coronavirus. These numbers are shocking. Stay with us. There's plenty more to come. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where U.S. blue chips are under pressure this morning after weak results from Dow Components 3M and McDonald's. That's the picture as we see it right now. As you can see, tech stocks set to pull back, too, after gaining some 1.5% in yesterday's session. Elsewhere, let's look at something sparkly. Gold pushing higher again after hitting record highs yesterday. Goldman Sachs out with a bullish new call on gold. They see it rising to $2,300 an ounce. Over the next year, Goldman's also sees silver rising to $30, just to give you a sense of that too, over the next 12 months as well. Very much tied, of course, what we're seeing for the US dollar. The dollar index bouncing a little today after falling to two-year lows. As I mentioned, the dollar weakness, a big theme on global markets for particularly for big corporates that have foreign earnings. It fell more than 1.5% last week. All right, as we've been discussing, as Republican lawmakers unveil their massive new stimulus plan here in the United States, our next guest says government rescues are ruining, I quote, capitalism. In a Wall Street Journal op-ed, Rishi Sharma, the head of emerging markets at Morgan Stanley Investment Management, also said government intervention leads to weaker growth, less innovation and greater inequality. And Rishi joins us now. Rishi, fantastic to have you on the show. I love this op-ed. Your point is not that it's we shouldn't be helping stimulate economies as a result of COVID, but just that there are significant downsides, particularly when you're stimulating in bad times and in good times. And that's where we are today. Exactly, Julia. That's really what's you know, been the story of capitalism over the last 30 to 40 years, that it's been greatly deformed. Uh, it's no secret that modern society increasingly looks to government to intervene, whether it's got to do with health emergencies or to do with economic rescues. And we seem to think that that's fine as long as the government intervenes and is able to somehow prop growth up without any apparent consequences, um, it's fine for that to happen. And the point I try and make in that Wall Street Journal essay that you refer to is that the downside of constant government intervention is much more insidious than we think it is. It leads to lower productivity over time. And that's been one of the big paradoxes of the last decade or two, that we're in the midst of this incredible tech boom, and yet productivity numbers around the world have been declining. And I'll try and uh, find out as to what's happening and link it much to the increased government intervention that we're seeing at every level, from the Fed um, increasingly involved in the marketplace to the fact that government spending everywhere has been going up. And this pandemic has only accelerated many of the trends that we have been seeing over the last few decades. 
you're suggesting that the more money that we're throwing at the system, it helps the strong get stronger. And we've seen this with the big tech companies at the cost of smaller companies in particular, they get squeezed out. And actually that ends up suppressing innovation, which ties back to your point about, in fact, lower productivity and weaker growth rather than stronger in the end. What's being crowded out here are the startups. So if you look at the number of new startups, those have been declining over time. Uh, they're getting squeezed at both ends. As you point out, at one end, you have the rise of uh, these uh, very large companies, virtual monopolies uh, that's taking place. At the other end, we have the rise of these zombie companies, companies which are not able to even earn enough to uh, make good on their interest payments any year. So they have to keep coming to the market to borrow. Just in the United States, the number of zombie companies as a share of the total number of companies has risen from a number as low as 2% uh, in the 1980s to nearly 20% now. To believe that 20% of all companies in the United States, as an example, can be classified as zombie companies or companies don't, that don't even earn enough interest uh, to, uh, or enough profit, rather, to make good on their interest payments. And so they have to keep going to the market to borrow. So you have these very inefficient companies that are kept alive at one end and the rise of monopolies. And what gets squeezed out in the middle is the startups. So that, I think, is something which is so against the very idea of capitalism, which is about creative destruction. It's about price discovery. These notions have been lost as we see increased government intervention and this fear that we can't let anybody fail, whether it's too big to fail or even too small to fail. It also works for nation states as well. You make the point of Cyprus. It had all sorts of troubles seven years ago, and now it's raising 20-year money at what around 1%, which is incredibly eye-opening. But I, I want you to hone in on the point that you just made there, which is, you know, we don't see creative destruction anymore. When you start to use those kind of terms, people get scared. How do you protect the weakest but still allow economies to go into recession? Because we've forgotten what that looks like. Right. So I'm not arguing for the fact that in a recession, the government shouldn't help. Yes, the government's job uh, has been in the post-Great Depression era to help during recessions, to try and smoothen out business cycles. What I'm against is that that continues even after the recoveries are well entrenched. So right in the last decade before this pandemic, we saw a continuous increase in zombie companies and also this fear that no country can also be allowed to default. So the number of countries today which are defaulting on their debt is also close to a record low level. So the fact that no one is allowed to go bust, there's no cleansing of the system at all, and we keep on supporting the entrenched players, I think this is also something why so many people, especially the young, are growing increasingly disenchanted with the system because they think we have capitalism, whereas, as I argue in the piece, what we really have is a form of socialism just for the rich and the powerful. <sighs> just a different form of socialism that's benefiting the richer rather than everybody, as the traditional format supposed to be. What does a format reboot look like, Rishir? Because what we're saying here is this form of capitalism, this form of constant rescues clearly isn't working. And actually, it's costing jobs. It's raising the level of inequality. What does a reboot look like? 
a reboot really is that we got to sort of uh, go back to the times when that the moment of recovery begins, I think that the Fed or uh, the government in general need to step back from their intervention. This whole notion that you keep on intervening because there are no consequences. As long as there's no inflation, we can keep on intervening. I think that idea needs to be re-examined. So I think that the reboot that you're talking about means that once you have a, some sort of a recovery which begins, we need to, the government needs to step back. And I think in some way, an example in, uh, is that of Germany. Uh, it's not the, the best example, but it is uh, a good example, which is that Germany, for example, they saved during the recovery periods. They ran government surpluses. And then when you have a big recession like we did in the last few months, you go out and spend big to try and smoothen out the business cycle. But what I'm against, which is what the United States did, is that even in the 10th year of its economic recovery, it was running very large budget deficits to try and boost economic growth. That is not the job of stimulus to boost economic growth so late in the stages of a recovery. Yeah, the challenge here is uh, for any government making this kind of decision to perhaps pull back. How do you do it and get re-elected? Rishi, always great to chat to you. And I recommend everyone reads the op-ed. It's uh, fantastic. Rishi Sharma, Head of Emerging Markets at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Always great to have you on the show, sir. All right, we're back after this with the opening bell. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running on Wall Street this Tuesday and they're moving lower. We have got a lot to watch. Actually, I'm lying to you. Look at the TASDAQ. Oh, no, it's frozen. There you go. The joys of live TV. Lots to watch. I'll let you know as soon as we start to see that moving again. We've got the Democrats and the Republicans also set to meet for a second day as those stimulus negotiations heat up in Washington. We've also got the Federal Reserve beginning their two-day policy meeting in Washington, D.C. too. So it's going to be interesting to see what their take is on latest stimulus and where we stand as far as the U.S. economy is concerned. Also going to be watching plenty of headlines from the tech sector to the CEOs of Amazon. Facebook, Apple and Alphabet, as Hadass was mentioning earlier, testifying before Congress tomorrow on antitrust issues. And we've got tech earnings from all four of those fangs out on Thursday. Wow, so that's going to be a busy day. In the meantime, McDonald's shares lower after the company reported a 23% drop in global sales for the second quarter. Claire Sebastian joins me now. Claire they pulled the guidance. We know they were challenged, but this was very much about the international business as much as what they were seeing domestically. Just walk us through the numbers here. Yeah, Julia, it was it was not a pretty set of numbers. Some of them missed expectations. That's why you see the, the stock down today. 23% drop in comparable sales. That's basically a, a loss of a quarter of their business. So that that is a pretty big deal for a company like McDonald's. 30% drop in revenue. Earnings were down by two-thirds. So it was an ugly quarter, uh, but, but especially in international, where I think they struggled to reopen even more. In the U.S., they saw significant improvement. It, it was only down 2.3% in June, but it was still internationally down about 18% in June in their key international markets. Uh, so that is definitely something to watch. But the crucial point about this is that sequential improvement. And what we wanted to hear from the call was whether that is continuing into July. And they said it was. They said that comparable sales have actually, in the U.S. in particular, started to turn positive in July. The CEO is saying that he expects that the second quarter will be the low point of the year because they've now 
put in all this effort to adjust their stores, to implement safety protocols, uh, to sort of cut back their menu, to do all they can to try to support their company-owned stores and, of course, their franchisees, which make up most of the business. But the bottom line, Julia, is that it does look like there will be a long-term shift away from dining rooms and into drive-through. There was a lot of discussion about just how much of a competitive advantage that the markets that have a high concentration of drive-through stores are seeing and how they expect that will help them gain market share as customers start to come back. Yeah, that's such a great point. All the efforts to invest in digital technology, drive-throughs, helping uh, prove um, prove the point over this last uh, several months. But I was just looking at the expectations here for their earnings per share, ranging between 50 cents per share and $1.27 per share. I mean, we were operating in the dark, in particular in this one. So, uh, yeah, what a challenge. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. Now, as Claire was illustrating, the devastation to America's restaurant sector has been well and truly delayed bare. Data from Yelp showing 60% of restaurants which shut down during the pandemic are now closed for good. That surpasses shopping and retail, where just under half closed permanently. Yelp reports the highest number of closures are in states which have seen some of the highest number of COVID cases, namely California, New York. And Texas, they're clearly some of the largest states in America, too. Justin Norman is vice president of data science at Yelp and joins us now. Justin, these are shocking numbers. Yes, and thanks for having me on. They absolutely are. Uh, And unfortunately, what we're starting to see is that there is a shift from temporary to permanent business closures um, over the last recent weeks. Um, And we're starting to see those uh, those numbers um, make that shift as States are going back into lockdowns as the um, pandemic begins to spike back up again, especially in some of the most affected geographic areas. Talk about that in particular. I mean, I just mentioned there when you're talking about the likes of New York, of California, of, of Texas, the numbers are going to look bad in terms of size simply because they're such huge states. But even beneath that, there's real concerns about viability of businesses, not just now, but but even going forward. Absolutely. So what we've seen in particular for the restaurant category that you mentioned earlier is that the protections uh, for PPP and other types of assistance are beginning to run out. And so restaurants are really, um, quite frankly, low margin businesses and difficult to operate um, efficiently, even under the best of circumstances. So a lot of businesses, especially that were local ones or, or owned by sole proprietors or small groups, really struggle because they don't have the cash reserves to weather um, repeated shutdowns or, uh, or decreases in revenue for long periods of time. Now, there have been some notable exceptions to these types of categories, and those are those that restaurants that are able to shift into a delivery takeout or other type of service category. Um, but even then, that doesn't necessarily last forever. And so we've seen uh, in some areas a plateau of what we're calling temporary closures. That's businesses uh, in cities and states that are reopening that can, can take sort of pause but as the pandemic continues to grow, especially in places like Arizona, Texas, and Florida, where there are the highest spikes of COVID-19 cases recently, unfortunately, we do believe and have seen a trend towards permanent closures, um, which mean that these businesses likely will never be seen again. Yeah, it's the uncertainty, isn't it? And the ongoing aspect of this, it just makes it so hard for businesses to plan. To your point, and I do think this is very important, have you seen any correlation between the types of businesses that are reopening, let's say indoor dining, gyms, for example, bars, all the potential hotspots, and then a rising COVID cases later? Yes, so actually we have, um, Mm -hmm. and it is 
Uh, very interesting, as you said. Now, I want to say up front that we did see a statistical correlation, not uh, making any claims about causation yet. Um, that's simply not data we have, and it certainly hasn't been enough time to be able to give that relationship. But we did see um, a trend towards that. And in particular, restaurants, bars, uh, any type of nightlife and gyms, indoor activities like that, um, where there were, um, you know, sort of the uh, decrease in uh, COVID-19 cases and people went back to these locations, back to these activities, uh, especially in mass, we saw a clear spike in COVID-19 cases within those same locations right afterwards. Um, and in those sort of 10 states where these there was a massive increase in COVID-19 cases, we did see um, that, that correlation between that type of activity. And in particular, places like Florida, South Carolina, Arizona, and Texas, the usual suspects were represented there. Yeah, it's quite fascinating, isn't it? And you make a great point that we shouldn't make suppositions based on this data, but just comparing the data sets um, certainly suggests something here. I want to talk to you about consumer behaviour and what you're seeing in terms of black-owned businesses too, because even as perhaps the news flow has shifted away from the protests in light of, of George uh, Lloyd's death, onto and back onto the rising COVID cases around the nation, you're still seeing people, it seems, trying to support these businesses or at least looking for them and in significant size. That's right. And, you know, it's one of the lone good stories uh, coming out of the, the data, which is, is really uh, great to see for many reasons. But what your point is well made about the sustained nature. Um, so from May 25th to July 10th, we saw over 2,500,000 searches for black owned businesses on Yelp. And that's compared to about 35,000 over the same time period last year. So it's a 7,000% increase, um, which is something we've just quite frankly never seen before in any specific um, category. Uh, and in particular, people are looking for different types of black-owned businesses. It's not just restaurants. Um, they're interested in black-owned hair salons, um, black-owned coffee shops. Um, and that has begun to show a trend that's going to persist um, beyond just the, the few weeks surrounding George Floyd's death, but actually into a durable behavior that uh, has signaled a shift in consumer behavior overall. Um, and, you know, there are a, a lot of really great um, ways to connect with black businesses, but in particular, Yelp um, connected itself with a campaign called My Black Receipt, which was a movement that had a mission to empower the black community through spending directly um, in between uh, uh, June, uh, May 25th and June, um, June 6th. And uh, the goal is about five million, and that goal actually was surpassed quite a bit by seven to seven point five million. Um, and so we're sh we're seeing that people are not just looking for and interacting with black pages online or interested in mm. them, but they're spending real money um, over time, and that's a, a signal we hope continues. Yeah, absolutely. It's actually creating direct action to your point, as opposed to just perhaps searching and not following through and, and doing something about it. Just in very quickly, there was a lot of debate when we saw the small business loans going out that actually there wasn't enough pushed out to black owned, minority owned businesses. Do you track the data and, and break it down in terms of those that are black owned or minority owned that are perhaps struggling versus others? Do you see anything in the data that, that supports the concern? So actually, we only recently have launched an attribute which allows businesses to self-identify and right. to black owned, um, which is, is a great thing. And I think many people have taken advantage of it, what we're seeing in the data. But it hasn't been live enough for us to uh, long enough for us to take any significant um, analysis of it. But we'll certainly be looking at that in the future. Um, but we do know anecdotally that a lot of the businesses it, uh, that are in many of the areas that we do track are disproportionately 
um, uh, people of color owned. And of course, they've been impacted um, j just as much, if not more, than those that are in, uh, in areas where they're, they're not at higher of distribution. So it's certainly something that's important uh, to watch. And it's a thing that many of us in the sector who are supporting small and local businesses want the government uh, and, and states and local officials to continue to uh, provide support for. Absolutely. It's all uh, arming you to uh, fight the battle. Justin Norman, thank you so much for that. Uh, great to have you with us and come back and talk to us when you've uh, collected more of that data because we want to keep talking about it too. The Vice President of Data Science at Yelp. Thank you. All right, up next, the pandemic reshapes banking in Brazil. It was already happening, but we speak to the CEO of New Bank, Latin America's biggest digital bank, to find out what they're up to. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, and we're heading to Brazil now, where the coronavirus outbreak is the worst in the world after the United States. And like many places in the world, it's changing the way people bank. Newbank is a digital bank that offers mobile-based banking and a no-fee credit card to 26 million customers. The bank was already growing at a staggering rate. It quadrupled its customer base last year alone. And the pandemic has only fueled that further. The bank has expanded now into Mexico and recently acquired U.S. software company Cognitech. Joining us now is David Velas. He's founder and CEO of New Bank. David, fantastic to have you with us on the show. In your own words, just explain the incredible growth that you're seeing. Was it simply just the lack of any product, not necessarily a digital one or otherwise? Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. Yes, uh, for a very long time, we've seen, obviously, a very fast adoption of digital technology in Brazil and in banking. But what happens is, for a segment of the population, they still wanted to go to the banking branch and have a coffee with that branch manager and stay there for 30 minutes, an hour, and have a conversation. Suddenly, all those banking branches are closed, and there is no any there's, there's no alternative beyond digital banking. And so for a large percentage of populations, particularly above 60 years old, and in certain areas of the country, we've seen very, very fast adoption through the pandemic. Uh, they're looking for the top uh, digital banking solutions. They're having to receive money from government. They're having to send money abroad. And so all of those solutions have really uh, expanded and accelerated our growth rate. But that doesn't explain what was happening in 2019. I mean, you went from 5 million to 26 million customers in the, in the space of a year. What exactly was driving that even before the pandemic hit? Sure, that's right. So we started in 2013 with a view that the banking industry in Brazil and Latin America was a banking industry dominated by five banks, very strong oligopoly, that for a very long time had had no competition. They were charging some of the highest fees and interest rates in the world. And customers were really experiencing a lack of access and lack of customer experience. When we launched with a full digital solution, we were able to offer banking products with no fees uh, since we had no physical branches and we have no very expensive overhead, but also very, very much focused on the customer experience, really using a different type of language, a different type of experience, and really enabling a really great customer experience. And so we started seeing the development and sort of the growth in 2014, 15, early adoption by the millennials. But really by 2019, uh, the market has really embraced digital alternatives. And 2019 was the year where we really accelerated 
as the leading digital bank in, in, in Brazil. You know, it's fascinating as well. I look at some of the statistics in Mexico. Half the population's under 24 years old. They get digital. They're engaged with that. But less than, what, 10 percent of Mexican adults actually have a credit card. So you clearly saw an opportunity there to do exactly what you've done in Brazil. And off you go. That's right. And it's, it's a problem both on the banked consumers in, in really in all Latin America and Mexico and Brazil. Banked consumers are paying just too high of a fees. They're getting bad consumer experience. They're having to go to a branch or having to wait over an hour to get service. So for those banked consumers, we've been able to really offer a way better experience, no fees. But then you have over 250 million people in Latin America that has no access. People that were never, they never felt welcome inside of a branch. They felt that the banking manager was making them a favor by opening an account. And so they have to do long way lines and they'd rather put their money under their mattress. So for both of those type of customers, we really are becoming a great solution. And we're seeing, even in Brazil today, we have access, uh, we have customers in 100% of all the Brazil municipalities. We have customers in the Amazons. We have customers in the South. Banking branches only exist in 80% of those. So the yeah. financial inclusion aspect is, is something that's growing really, really fast in, uh, for, for Newbank. Yeah, and it's something we're really passionate about on this show as well. What's the biggest challenge here, David, very quickly? Is it about finding engineers, finding coders as you grow and expand? Or does it competition at some point kick in? I mean, if I think about some of the European digital banks, N26, Revolut, they know Mexico in particular is a, a huge opportunity. Does that kind of competition make it more expensive to operate there? What's the biggest challenge? <sighs> Biggest challenge really is finding the very best people, the very best talent. Mm -hmm. We uh, are not worried about competition. We think competition is great. R ultimately, 90% of our customers are in the big banks. They are in five banks that own any of these markets. And so we are here to try to offer better, product, uh, better products. It really is the talent that becomes a big bottleneck. Latin America, unfortunately, hasn't had a big ecosystem of, of technology and engineering talent. There is not a lot of quantity. So developing that talent in-house and really importing a lot of talent from around the world has been a, lot, a big focus to allow us to scale. Very quickly, David, because I have about 30 seconds. Cognitech, what is this acquisition going to mean for the customer experience? Well, Cognitech, they are the developers of Clojure and Datomic. These are two pieces of technology that today Nubank is the largest user in the world. What that ultimately means for the customer experience is our ability to scale faster and larger, being able to offer better products and maintaining a very, very efficient infrastructure to pass that efficiency to the end consumer and continue to offer the best customer experience. We're going to continue this conversation. I know Tencent is a big investor and it was lessons learned in China as well being adopted in the LATAM that was part of the ethos. David, we shall continue this. For now, it was great to chat to you at David Velez, the Perfect. founder and CEO of Newbank. Stay safe, sir. Thank you, Julia. Thank you. Thank All right. Coming up, the U.S. Attorney General gets ready to testify on Capitol Hill in a long, long awaited showdown with House Democrats. We've got his opening remarks straight ahead. As you heard earlier on the show, U.S. Attorney General William Barr set to testify before the House Judiciary Committee in the next hour. The hearing now scheduled to begin at 10.45 a.m. Eastern Time. This after committee chairman Jerry Nadler was involved in a car accident on his way to Washington. CNN's Joe Johns joins us live. The Democrats have been waiting 14 months for this, so they can wait a little bit longer. 
Do we know about uh, Jerry Nadler's health? Is he okay? Right. The understanding is that Jerry Nadler is okay, that he was not injured, but it doesn't sound like this hearing is getting off to a good start for him, uh, given the fact that Democrats have been waiting so long for this opportunity to question William Barr. Really, the takeaway, if anything, on this, Julia, is that he is set to go before the Judiciary Committee probably in about 45 minutes and to push back against the narrative that he is essentially a tool of the White House, that he's just there doing the bidding of the president. And Democrats have said that again and again. In fact, they want to question him about a variety of issues, a variety of things he's done in office. As for his statement, part of his statement, which has been released to the media, it's pretty clear that Nadler first wants to push back against that narrative, and then he also wants to talk about federal involvement and police involvement in the unrest around the country that we've seen that's been very controversial, in fact. He wants to justify it and say, essentially, that the federal government has been under attack. Again, Democrats are going to probably go far and wide in the questioning because there are many who believe the Attorney General has been involved in grave abuses of power since he first took the job. Julia? Yeah, they believe the Department of Justice is more focused on serving the President rather than the people here. Joe, very quickly, what do we expect from him? He once said or alluded that the President made it impossible for him to do his job. Right. Well, the fact of the matter is we expect him to align himself with the President, but also to make it clear that, in his view, he has independence, he has autonomy, and no one at the White House, he will say, or is expected to say, has ordered him to do anything, including the president, that he's done um, his job under his own volition and uh, using his own assessments, as you will, uh, on which way to go on particular matters. Back to you, Julia. Yes. The judgment remains to be seen. Senior Washington correspondent Joe Johns, thank you for that. And stay tuned for Barr's testimony right here on CNN. But for now, that's it for First Move. I'm Julia Chatterley. Stay safe and I'll see you tomorrow. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.